Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one that is assembled here together with us. And Lord, we just want to praise you for the two that have made decisions to follow you in baptism and identify as members of this church and servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for this, Lord. But Lord, we ask that you would give power to preach the message this morning that it would be simple and clear, and Lord, we'd be able to see past all of the things that our human nature and our human uh, abilities to reason just uh, put in the way to cloud and to um, keep us from the reality of the love of Christ. We ask that you would work in each heart that we may be drawn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You wouldn't turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2 and all the children. You may be dismissed to the children's and toddler's churches. Revelation chapter 2. And uh, several weeks ago we started in Revelation chapter 1. And uh, last week I just felt like we needed to uh, have the sermon uh, that we did. And that was confirmed by uh, many people who were here for that. And this morning I'd like us to uh, look at the first letter to the first church. And uh, if all goes well, we have seven letters and uh, we have seven Sundays left before our anniversary service. So uh, we may uh, be able to get in all uh, seven of these letters to the churches, and by way of introduction, no, we we do not believe that these are church ages or that there is any mystical or hidden meanings in the text here. We believe that these were simply seven literal letters written to seven literal churches that existed uh, at the time of the writing. But, but we believe that these churches were picked for a reason uh, because they, in essence, represent what goes on in churches even down to this day. Uh, we do not sing the exact same hymns that they sang uh, in the first century, uh, but we know they sang hymns. Uh, the night Jesus was betrayed, how did they end the service? They sang a hymn and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, of course, uh, most of the hymns that we sang this morning were written in the last 100, 150 years. Some of them are a little older than that. Uh, I believe that the cross is, uh, is a rather old hymn, but uh, uh, certainly nothing we sang this morning was over three or 400 years old. Uh, and uh, yet our Bible's over 400 years old, amen? Uh, and uh, yet if we go much before those times, they, they had different ways, but we practice, in essence, the same thing. We study the same Bible. We have the message here, and Jesus was writing this letter through John to this church. And... Um, we understand that there is an order in the church. Jesus was introduced as standing. In fact, let's just read here. Uh, we'll get to this right here. No need to double it up. Uh, chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy work, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works, 
or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Those seven verses are the first letter to the first church that is mentioned, the church at Ephesus. And if you'll remember your Bible history, the church at Ephesus was actually the longest single place that Paul stayed during his church planting work, uh, his entire ministry. He spent three years in Ephesus. And if you'll remember, they had a great revival in the city of Ephesus in the fact that people brought out all of their occult books and witchcraft and and uh, whatever the equivalent of their Ouija boards and things like that, and they burned them and their tarot cards and all of these things and made such a, uh, 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 an ordeal in the city that the, uh, the idol makers at the, pre, at the temple of Diana or Artemis there in the city of Ephesus were afraid that the temple was going to close. And so they set the entire city uh, in a riot and tried to eradicate Paul and the Christian followers. And yet the church at Ephesus has a history. We have them uh, sitting. Uh, if you study church history, you will see the church of Ephesus repeated often down through the ages until even after the fall of the Roman Empire, there was still a testimony of a church at Ephesus. Now, was it a good church way up then, 500 A.D.? Probably not, because things had already started changing at the church of Ephesus, as evidenced in our letter. This was 30, possibly 40 years after Paul was there himself, and wrote the letter to the book of uh, to the church at Ephesus. And if you'll remember, uh, as he was going to Jerusalem to before he was arrested, and Paul was sent and uh, put in prison for uh, at least four years, he met the uh, elders at Ephesus, and he said, "You're not going to see my face again," uh, because Paul, when he went on his next missionary journeys. He, he would go as far as we know. He said he wanted to go to Spain and, and to Great Britain. And the uh, Welsh Baptists claimed that their church was started by the Apostle Paul before Nero uh, arrested him uh, years later. And he was executed somewhere around 68 A.D., we think. So the church of Ephesus has a biblical history, and Jesus has a lot of good things to say, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, Jesus introduces himself to the church, and he will introduce himself in a very distinct way to each of the churches. His first description here is, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Now, these seven stars, if we'll look back to the end of uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, it says right there in the middle of the verse that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So, Jesus introduces himself to the church at Ephesus as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of those seven golden candlesticks. The candlesticks are the churches. And we can take that directly back to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, Ye are the light of the world. This is not something that is an individual task or duty. It's something that's to be carried out through the church. Amen? 
It's something that we do corporately. If we want to run back even further to the Old Testament tabernacle, the only source of light was the candlestick. It was made of solid gold. No wood. No other items in that. That was a representation of Jesus Christ. Is it not right for us to connect John chapter 8 where Jesus said, I am the light of the world to the candlestick in the tabernacle and the temple and as that symbol follows, the church is the body of Christ. Christ has given us His revelation. That's what the book of Revelation is, the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? His light. But how does the world get the light of Jesus? Through His church. The church is His body. Are are you seeing those connections through the Scriptures? You see, the church has a specific job. And there's been a lot of talk about who these stars or angels are. But let me just ask you a question. Does this mean that each church has a special angel and this invisible angel gives messages to the church? Uh, We hardly find that in Scripture now, do we? Because God's message is what? It's written down, isn't it? If you're going to find out anything about God, if you're going to find out His message or anything at all that He has to say, it is going to come through this book. But who's supposed to preach the Bible in the church? Well, that's the pastor's job. That's why we don't have Bible studies where everybody sits around in a circle and and shares. That's not biblical. That's man's reasoning. Uh, That's why we don't have a plurality of elders. Again, that is man's reasoning. Someone said this is a democracy. No, the church has never, ever been a democracy, the true church. Now, the congregational church was because they didn't have a Bible And they didn't have pastors that led the church. And so, in order to figure out what they were supposed to do, the congregation made the decisions. Hence, the name Congregational Church. You don't see very many of them. We saw one uh, upstate New York when we were on vacation. Most of them have become Unitarian churches, meaning they no longer believe in the Trinity of God. They they just believe in this... uh, force out there, kind of like Star Wars nuts. Uh, uh, They have given up on everything. And that's where congregational leadership goes. Who is the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. And last time I checked, there was nothing that he said in his word that was up for a vote. Amen? He dictated, to use a word that's inflammatory, He gave us His Word. He gave this letter to John by dictation. He spoke it. And John wrote it down. And, And it is our job, it is the pastor's job to study this book called the Bible And bring God's message to the people of the church. And it's your responsibility, this is where your responsibility comes in, is to make sure what is preached is from the Bible. And if it's from the Bible, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. We've got to obey it. Because that's God's order in the church. Amen? And Jesus introduces himself. He says, listen, I'm the one that's holding those seven stars, those pastors of those churches, and I'm addressing this letter to the pastor so that he will take this message to the church 
that I am the head of because I'm the one that's in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. If the world is going to see Jesus, it's going to see Jesus through his church. We've got to be careful with that. God has entrusted to us one of the greatest responsibilities that a human being can grasp. We, as a church, are to take the message of Jesus to the world in which we live. We, we need to embrace that responsibility. Amen? Uh, that's why we take an offering every Sunday. Part of our responsibilities. Yes, we got to pay the light bill, the electric bill, the insurance bill, all of those things. But much more importantly than just paying the bills, we need to keep our doors open. Yes. But a great portion of everything we do leads this church to take that message into all the world in which we live. Amen? And Jesus is introducing himself. He says, listen, I'm the one responsible for this order. I'm the one responsible for the message. I am the message of the church. And so he says, now, I have some things to say to the church at Ephesus. And the first thing he says to the church at Ephesus in verse 2 is, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Now, that's, that's quite a set of attributes, is it not? He said, I know your works. He says, I know what's going on at the church of Ephesus, I know your labor. Uh, was talking with Stephen as we uh, uh, prepared. They got on the plane yesterday, got back to Oklahoma City safe, and now they're preparing to start another semester of school. And Stephen is saying, boy, school and, and, and working at Starbucks is going to be so easy compared to this summer uh, of all the labor uh, working uh, in, in the job he worked this summer and working at Union, oftentimes he'd work 10, 12 hours, and then he would come, call me up and say, Dad, do you need me today? And I said, well, Stephen, if you're able to come, we need you today. Then he'd come over and work a few more hours and then get up in the morning and start over again. Uh, you know, labor is supposed to make you sweat. We don't have time to go back to Genesis chapter 3. But labor is supposed to be work. You're supposed to feel it. Labor. And there was labor going on. And not only was there labor, there was patience. How many of you remember James chapter 1? But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. I mean, this is a good thing. This is the church, we might say, that wouldn't quit. Not only had they done works, they were doing work. They were keeping it up, and they weren't quitting. And they, um, it says, and hast not fainted. Now, by this time, there had already been several persecutions. Nero's persecution uh, was over, and uh, there were two or three other guys after Nero before 100 A.D. that sought out the Christians specially. And, of course, the city of Ephesus was one of the capital cities of the Roman Empire. Everything in that part of the world went through Ephesus. And so it would have been a special hunting ground for the Christians. And it says, you didn't quit. They were not known for their persecution. Some of the other churches are. But we get to... Uh, well, let's, let's finish this here um, in, in verse 2. And it says, And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Now, I'll tell you, the church at Ephesus did not have 
the complete Bible, as we do today, the book of Revelation, was just being delivered to them in this letter. And and so, it wasn't that in 100 A.D. it would take about 50 years, as far as we know, for the Bible to be really complete and codified or put into a, a single book as we understand it today. Uh, there were just individual letters that were being passed around and copied, and it says that the, the Ephesians could not bear them which were evil, and tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. I mean, I don't understand today why we have so much problems with cults and and false types of worship. Because all you have to do is get out your Bible. And people like Jim Jones, if you're old enough to remember him, immediately, glaringly show up as false prophets. The wacko from Waco, David Koresh, Sung Young Moon, who blasphemously reports that Jesus appeared to him and asked him to straighten out the mess that Jesus made, the mistakes that Jesus made during his earthly ministry. What could be more blasphemous than that? How in the world? Could you have a church of Jesus Christ headed by a cuckoo like that? How about Mr. Applewaite and the plastic bags and everybody who committed, nine other people committed, I believe it was, committed suicide with him so that they could get on the mother ship as it was orbiting close to earth. And nobody wants to mention that Mr. Applewaite was only able to join polite company when his medications were correct. That's uh, true. The guy was a verified nutcase, and yet eight other people followed him to their death. Because they refused to believe the words of this book called the Bible. See... Only God has the right to define what is evil and what is good. We live in a world where they're trying to redefine those words. I I heard a news clip the other day. Anyone who's against the true love of of people is, is evil. And, of course, the context was sodomites. That's not true love. The Bible tells us that's the deepest perversion that mankind can sink to. And how in the world can promoting evil be good? And yet that is the mind of the world in which we live. That's the mind of our governor. Remember what he said a little while ago? He had to correct himself. When he said there's no room for people who don't believe in abortion in New York State. Well, I'm talking about politically. Liar. You you would just love a world where you were in charge of everything and everybody. Praise God, that hasn't happened yet. But let me tell you, he's not the first to have said such things. Nero was going to eradicate all the Christians. And less than 300 years later, 240 years later, the Roman Empire adopted the cross as their symbol. Not that the Roman Empire became Christian, of course not. Roman Empire's never been Christian, never will be. But there were so many Christians in the Roman world in 314 that the pagan Emperor Constantine, the founder of the Orthodox Church, adopted the Christian symbol, the cross, so he could get enough people to follow him to become Caesar. Amazing, isn't it? And so, as we look at this, we find that this church worked, they were labored, they had patience, they didn't quit, they endured hardness. 
They could not bear them that were evil. And they let God define what you're evil. And as today, there are many false prophets out there. They tried them. How do you try a false prophet? We've just been through that. You get out the Bible. That's how you find out who's telling the truth and who's lying. Just the way you can tell the difference between what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Amen? And the church at Ephesus did all of these things. Sounds like a good church. And hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Verse 3. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Wow. Wow. What an indictment. And we're, we're going to come back to that. But at this point in the message, I just want to touch on this thing. Jesus says to the pastor, to this church, that I have somewhat against thee. I have something against thee. I, I am against my church. Now, why was Jesus against his church? He said, because thou hast left thy first love. Now, let's just look at those words. Thou, he's talking to the pastor to whom the letter is addressed, and in reality to the church as a whole. This was not something that was just done by one individual in the church. This was something that was corporately done. This was something that was reflective of the entire church there at Ephesus at this point. And remember, uh, there's about a maximum of less than 40 years since Paul was there starting the church that uh, when this letter was written... And so, it's not a long time period here. Uh, there arguably could have been some of the same people that knew the Apostle Paul who were still members of the church. Several years ago, uh, we had the privilege of uh, being back at Cleveland Baptist Church, our sending church, for their 50th anniversary. And... Uh, that was just a, a very, very special time. And many of the people that were there were at that church 50 years prior when that church was started. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And so, we're, we're not talking a long period of time here, but he said, Thou... Has left. Now, when you leave something, when you decide to stop doing something, is that not a willful choice? Is that not something you think about? And then you make a choice of will and behavior that makes you part or, or leave that thing. And so... The condemnation is you as a church have made a choice. That choice was followed by action. And that action has caused you to take your first love and to disregard it, to lay it aside. Now, before we get back to what the first love actually is, let's... Get a few things that it's not. Number one, it's not a desire or a passion for the true work of the true church. Because Jesus had just commended the church at Ephesus for having all that. I mean, so many times you read the commentaries and, and they say, Oh, the, the church lost their passion for their work. They were doing the right things. But but they just they just were doing it mechanically and... It, that is very close to the truth, but it misses by, by a mile. Because it wasn't just, they were doing the work. 
And Jesus said, you have patience, you're doing the work for the right reason. So it wasn't just a misplaced passion for the work of Jesus Christ. It was not a lack of zeal for true doctrine because when we get to the end, he's going to sell the church. He says, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. And so, they had doctrine. They had works. But they had lost their first love. They had left it. And so, before we come back to examine what this first love is, which will be the, the, the main core of the sermon this morning, we, we just need to build this thing here and understand that the seriousness of this offense uh, could not be any greater. Jesus said, I will come unto thee quickly. He said, there, this is a no-tolerance situation. How many times do you see, uh, I've heard, zero tolerance policy. What a lie. And then you hear about a four-year-old kid arrested for bringing a play gun to kindergarten. I mean, how stupid. I'm sorry. How foolish. How ignorant can people be? But they are. You see, that's not the way you deal with it. But Jesus is making a statement here. If this situation isn't changed, he says, I'm coming quickly. And I'm going to take your candlestick out. If you have no light, you're no longer a true church. Jesus says, I'm going to take it out of the circle of churches. Does that mean the building would collapse and the preacher would die of a heart attack and all the people in the church would be emptied? Or, uh, no. It, it means that Jesus was no longer going to hold the pastor, the star in his hand, and he was no longer going to be reflected in the light of the candlestick because... That candlestick was going to be put out. Any light that that church would have from this point forward would not be the light of the gospel. And by the way, this is what makes church history so complicated. Is because we know the church at Ephesus did not cease to exist. In fact, when Constantine founded what was to become known as the Orthodox Church... Uh, Ephesus and its pastor was there at the first meetings and, and, and helped formulate that uh, monstrosity that would become this uh, great collection of man's thoughts and traditions and all of these things. And Jesus had nothing to do with that church whatsoever. Because Jesus had already charged the church here somewhere between 95 and 105 A.D. when this letter was written that if you do not solve this problem, if you do not repent, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And so... Jesus says, listen, I want you, in verse 5, to remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. He said, this is the remediation. This is how you solve the problem. This is the remedy, we might say. He says, you're fallen. The level on which you operate today is not the level of which I expect you to operate as a church. And the connection between those two levels of operation is the first love. He said, you've left that first love, therefore, the, the, the 
things that are going on are not like it used to be. You need to remember from whence thou art fallen and repent. Now, how many of you remember when you got saved? You heard this message from the Bible that you were a sinner. That Jesus was the only possible solution for your sins. And you repented. Someone said, yeah, I was very sorry for my sin. No, that's, that's not repentance. What, what is repentance? In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. You see, godly sorrow works repentance. Worldly sorrow works suicide. Works murder. Works depression. Just being sorry does not solve any problems at all. But godly sorrow. Now, what's the difference? Well, the adjective godly tells us what kind of sorrow. If we will have the same type of sorrow that God had... It will lead us to a change in behavior, and that's what repentance is. Remember Esau sought repentance carefully with tears and was never able to find it? Because every time he worked through that situation, he came down to the final conclusion, I was going to die. I had to sell my birthright. It wouldn't have done me any good if I were dead. Now, was Esau going to die? No more than you or I. But Esau was tired. He was famished. He, He had come to an end of himself. And he decided that the most precious thing that God had bestowed upon him because of his place as firstborn was worth no more than a pot of beans. And so, the Bible says he despised his birthright. You see, several weeks ago, we went through Jude chapter 21. Jude chapter, it's chapter 1, verse 21. There's only one chapter. It says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. This is what the Ephesian church had not done. They had not kept themselves in the love of God. They had left their first love. And the Bible says that they needed to repent. And this repentance would result in doing the first works. And if it didn't, then their candlestick would be removed. And so now, we, we have the basic letter set. And of course, let's just touch on this and then we'll finish up here. It, it says in verses 6 that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So the church was doctrinally correct and And don't get too caught up in the Nicolaitans. There are as many definitions of Nicolaitans as there are people to invent them. Uh, We we do not know. They were never scripturally defined. Most people believe that the Nicolaitans had something to do with Nicholas of Antioch, which is mentioned in the Bible. There's no no real evidence of that at all. the word or the title, the name Nicholas means conqueror. And so they've come up with the idea that the Nicolaitans were the first to have a difference between clergy and laity, that there were two levels of Christianity. 
Certainly the Bible tells us something that that's something that Jesus hates. Others try to tie them to the sensual, wicked nature. Uh, I'll tell you, the only thing we can know is that the Nicolaitans were responsible for some things that God hates. You know, I think they were left undefined because there will always be things trying to enter the church that God hates. Like, quote-unquote, Christian rock and roll music. Like entertainment style worship, quote unquote, services. Those, those things God hates. And they're trying to enter the church today. Because the thing that Jesus loves is the preaching of this book called the Bible. That's, that's a message. Amen. We, we can't argue with that. And the promise is that if you'll have an ear to hear, he that hath an ear, let him hear. And, and we have to understand that there are people that do not have ears. I mean, they have them, they're out here, and we're not talking about people who are physically deaf. We're talking people who are spiritually deaf. Have you ever met someone where you tried to explain what sin is and they just couldn't understand it? It's because they, they, they have no ear to hear the things of God. You try to explain the difference between preaching the Bible and preaching traditions, and they, oh yeah, we all serve the same God. You're, you're talking to someone who has no ears. Someone who cannot hear the truth that's in the Word of God. And the challenge is, if you can hear it, better do it. And you'll be able to eat of the tree of life and enjoy the paradise of God. That's the promise. But I I think if we're going to understand this first love biblically, that we ought to let the Bible define it for us. And so the next few moments, I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And it's interesting that it says, Thou hast left thy first love. And so let's just look at what the Bible says about that first love. Let's start in verse 16 of 1 John chapter 4. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. So, God is love. Would that not be the first love of the Christian? Let's keep going. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. You see, if we want to be ready... Unlike the Ephesian church, to meet the Lord on the day of judgment, we need to have love that is perfect. Amen? And goes back to that word, perfect, does not mean with sinless perfection. It means complete, lacking nothing. It's a very simple word. And how can our love be complete? It says... Because as he is, so are we in this world. Now we go back to the very beginning of our message. Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? How is that light to get to the world in which we live? Through the golden candlestick, the local church, which is the body of Christ. So if we take that simple message... Of God's true love to the world, we are, as He is, so are we in this world. We're the message that God wants to get into the world. But when we do things to muddy the message, when when we 
change things in that message, when we make substitutions in that message, have we not left our first love? You see, the next verse is, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. How many of you have been afraid to obey the Bible? Hello? Had one honest person here this morning other than me. You know what? If you're afraid to do what the Bible says, you got a love problem. Doing what the Bible tells us to do. You see, let's read on here. I, I don't want to take too much time here. We love Him. Why? Because he first loved us. Is that not the first love of the Christian? We, we love him. The first love that we have expressed toward God is because we understand his love toward us. I think the way that I've tried to put this over the years, what you do to get saved is what you do to live for Him each day. But what happens is we get comfortable in our Christianity. We get used to doing what's right. And if we're not careful, we'll lose track of this thought here. We love Him because He first loved us. Could I challenge you that this world is full of unlovable people? And could I further challenge you that you and I are in that number? We've got to be honest. If we're not honest at church, where are we going to be honest? See, here's one of the problems of all every cult that's out there. people start loving a man or a woman or a person or a leader because of how smart they are or insightful they are or caring they are. I mean, uh, they have this Mother Teresa person who was the quickest saint to be beatified in that process in the Catholic Church. And yet I've read testimonies of people who have actually met her and had to do business with her, that she was one of the meanest, nastiest people they ever met. Now, I don't know that that's true. I just picked that bit of information up. I, I give it to you without any substantiation, but people that have had to deal with her said that she wasn't very nice to deal with. It was her way or the highway. You just... And... Um, if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. She was gone. Well, wait a minute. You see, when I accept God's love, it demands that I love God back now, doesn't it? But it also does something else. If ye love me, what? Keep... My commandments. You don't get to vote on that, my friend. That's not an option. You don't get to think about which ones you want and which ones you don't. If you love God, you're going to keep His commandments. And guess what? Look at verse 3 of John chapter 5. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. You know, the greatest joy of your life ought to be to be able to be obedient to Jesus Christ, to keep His 
commandments. But you know what that joy will do? Look at verse 2. 1 John chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. I wish I could unlock this verse for every person in the room here. We know the words. We know what it says. But we don't get it. We just don't get it. You see, if I'm going to truly care about you as an individual and love you as an individual, if there's going to be a love relationship, if there is love coming from me in your direction, here's how I exhibit that love. I keep His commandments. Oh, wait a minute. If I love another person, I mean, I love my wife, I, I ought to have feelings and emotions toward her. Well, wait a minute. If I truly love my wife, what am I going to do? Keep His commandments. You know what one of His commandments is? Dwell with them according to knowledge. Amen? That's from the book of Peter. There's lots of commandments. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. You know what, husband? That'll make your wife's job of loving you a whole lot easier if you'll just do what the Bible says. Because you know what the Bible tells the wife? It says you're supposed to obey the husband. You know, with that one simple rule... We could destroy New York City as it is known today. Could we not? Wouldn't it turn this city upside down if we just got rid of women rule? It would shatter the liberal stranglehold that is on this city and everything that it is that's going on. It really would. Uh, by the way, don't get your hopes up. What you need to do is understand it's not my job to change that. The only thing I have to do is worry about keeping His commandments. Because that's how I'm going to love other people. We've, we've had people come visit our church, and then they'll drop out, and then they'll come back years later. Wow, you're still doing the same things. Yeah, yeah, we haven't changed. You know why? Because Jesus hasn't changed any of his commandments. Uh, and so if we're going to love him, we've got to do what he says. Could we say amen to that? But you see... Second Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. It's the love of Christ that makes us do what we do. That's why we're particular about baptism. Because Jesus was particular about baptism. If he wasn't, he could have ordained any person to baptize him. But he didn't. He traveled on foot over 60 miles to go to John because he was the man that God sent. And so we want to be careful with baptism. Amen? Because Jesus was. And you see... The solution was to remember from whence thou art fallen. How many messages could we preach from the Bible of be not weary in well-doing? For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the whole Bible, if, if we could get this, we love him. Because he first loved us. 
You see, that's the stepping stone upon which the Calvinist takes his nosedive into heresy. He says that God's love demands that we love God. No, that's not what it says. When you, you cannot demand love. It must be accepted. It must be chosen. Isn't that true? I mean, you can choose duty. You can choose honor. You can choose uh, servitude. You can choose so many things. But you cannot demand love. It's got to be accepted. See, there's a lot of people in this world that don't believe that they can accept God's love because they don't believe God loves them. Because they're too busy accusing God of doing mean things. That goes back to the fear thing. I'm not afraid of God in the essence He's going to do something bad to me. But I'll tell you what, there ought to be a little fear of God when I disobey Him. Now, shouldn't there? There ought to be a little fear knowing that He is the creator of the universe, the most powerful being that ever was, ever will be, ever could be. And yet He wants me to talk to Him. There, there ought to be a little respect there. But you see, you know what love does? Love says, I can go to Him with anything. From the smallest and most insignificant thing to the weight of the world. And you see, sometimes we lose that. Sometimes we get so busy that we even choose to lay it aside. Apparently that's what happened in Ephesus, was it not? They had forgotten that the basis of everything that the Christian is, is we love him because he first loved us. Don't ever get over your salvation. And if you're here today and you haven't settled your salvation, you ought to get that done. It's not because of you. It's because of Jesus. Is there anything in your life that's so important that you wouldn't lay it aside to embrace Jesus Christ? It doesn't mean sinless perfection. No, it's keep yourself in the, in the love of God looking for His mercy. What is, why are we looking for His mercy while we're keeping ourselves in His love? Is because we still sin as human beings. You see, the church at Ephesus needed to hear something. It said, You've fallen. You're not doing the same, the right things for the right reasons anymore. And when you don't do the right things for the right reasons, those things are no longer right, by the way. Even though they have every appearance of being right. You see, the Amish people got together in 1828 and drew a line for the standard of righteousness which befitted 1828. But they look rather strange in 2017, do they not? You see, Jesus drew the standard of righteousness when he died on the cross, when he rose again from the dead. And we can embrace that standard today. And I will tell you this, if you truly want to live what the Bible says, you'll be much stranger than the Amish people are to the world in which we live. But that's okay. Because I'm not afraid of the world. Because I'm in love with Jesus. I love him because he first 
love me. He does not love me because I have some special ability that other people don't have. He loves me because for God so loved what? The world. He loves us all with that same love. And if we'll accept that love, it will constrain us. But you'll be more free in the constraints of God's love than you could ever be doing your own thing. We say amen to that. So I have a question. As a pastor, as a church, it says we're to look at this letter to the Ephesians here. It says there's a blessing to them that read and, and heed the things that are in the book of Revelation. And so we, we need to ask ourselves a question. Have we left our first love? Is the foundation for what we do We love Him because He first loved us. That's the first love of the Christian. There can be no other. That's how you got saved, amen? Is the foundation of your life that same love? Or have you looked for something deeper or something... That's that's what's happened to some of our young preachers is they're looking for something better than the simplicity in the Bible, and you can't find it. When you do, you no longer have Bible. you got something else. And that's why Jesus said, if you don't get back to that first love, I'm going to have to blow your candlestick out. I'm going to have to remove it because it's no longer reflecting my light. It's a different light. And the devil is transformed into an angel of light. So be careful. There are many lights in this world. But you can follow only one if you're going to be saved. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that love, it's not because of you. It's because of Jesus. That love will make you reach out to your fellow man and believers in Christ. But the better you obey Jesus, the better you'll love those around you. See, we want to start here. Not here. And that's leaving your first love. Because your first love is here. And you have to let that first love fill you And you'll find out that you'll have more than you need to reach out to other people. But if you're so busy reaching out to other people, you're going to run out of the supply. And it won't be God's love anymore. It's going to be something else. And God said, no more. Now, if there's anything that will put a little fear in our hearts, it's that. Amen? Here's the answer. Remember where you used to be. Repent. And do the first works. And we have a promise of God's blessing. Some people are going to miss heaven by so very little. But if it isn't, we love him because he first loved us. It's not Bible. It's not salvation. It's just an imitation. And that's why Jesus has to blow out the candlestick. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Lord, we just ask that you would help us.
to see this truth that is in your word. Lord, to understand that it's not just a desire or a passion or a driving force in our life. But everything we are, everything we're about must be. We love him because he first loved us. Lord, I pray for people that may not be saved in this auditorium this morning. That today would be the last day of their struggle and they would surrender to you. Lord, I I pray for those that have left their first love that they would be able to see and hear and understand this message. And that today would be repentance. And that tomorrow would begin the first works that we may be restored. Lord, I ask that the mirror of your word would reflect truly and each one of us in this room would be able to see ourselves as we truly are in the sight of a holy God. And Lord, that that would lead us not to just simple fear and trembling, but to godly sorrow and repentance. That we may truly deserve that candlestick status as a church. Lord, that our light would shine brightly in these last days. Lord, we ask the Holy Spirit would have freedom to work. In your name we pray. Amen. As Andrew comes and leads in the hymn of invitation, if you need to come and pray, the altar is open.